Okay. So, this morning I spoke at Anthem Camarillo, did two talks, and I was coming back tonight to speak again, carry on from 1 Peter, but my brain is actually dead from that talk, because it was actually quite a, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, it kind of sucked a lot of life out of us, and um, I don't think my mind was ready to do another talk from another text. So this is out of sync of what we're doing, but I actually think it's, it's, it's worth listening to. Um, I've never actually preached on this text before today, which is very interesting. So it's, the, it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it's the text on head coverings, which has always created its own complications in the church. And so it was a text that uh, Bert, who leads Anthem Ventura, and Matt, who leads Anthem Thousand Oaks, and I kind of worked together. So I was doing my notes, and then suddenly I got Matt's notes, and then I got Bert's notes. And then Matt saw Bert's notes. He said, well, let me redo the notes and merge them all. So he did that, then send them all to us, and then I adjusted those, and we, we are where we are. This morning at 5.30, we were texting each other. How's it going? Not think anyone's sleeping. It's because it's an interesting text. And at the end, text comes through from Bert. Whew. Two seconds later, Matt comes in and says, really? So... We're all in that kind of boat. So I'm going to talk about it. It's, a, it's an interesting text. Um, so shall we read it? I'm going to start reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. (laughs) Nevertheless... Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her hair uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Wow. What on earth does it mean? It's a really confusing text. Um, and so the, over, the, I mean, over the centuries, there's been a lot of discussion around this text, a lot of study. And generally, people form into two areas. One is they hold a kind of old traditional view that this is about gender roles, about men being superior to women. Or it's on this side where we throw it out and say, no, let's just impose the culture and everybody's equal. And I don't think it's either one of those. We actually have to do the work of looking at the text. And because of that, I think it's so confusing. 
that we have to be open-handed, we have to be humble, we have to say, God, we don't know fully. Um, we, we're all different cultures even here that are in the church. We diff- it's just different. How are we going to deal with this in a wonderful way? Now, you get two things. You get exegesis. Does anyone know what exegesis is? Yeah, you know, see where there's one. Exegesis, you take the text, and you dig into the text, and you do all your homework and all language in it, and you let the text speak to you. The other way is to do eisegesis, where you impose on the text what you hold to be true. And what we want to do is exegesis. You know, we want to... We want to draw out of this what we can by understanding, one, that this was written in a Greek that they don't speak anymore. It was written 2,000 years ago into a culture that doesn't exist like that anymore with metaphors that we don't quite understand, and it's kind of all over the place. And so somehow we have to try to do the work and draw that out of there. Um, the bigger picture that I think is happening here, if you start looking at the end of 10, going into 11, 12, 13, 14, Paul starts speaking about what does the church look like when it gathers? How does it operate? How do we practice when we gather? Like 12, 13, 14 has to do with the gifts. And he's leading into that by one, talking about head coverings in the meeting. The next one, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. But it's all in the context of the gathering of God's people. So one of the important things to realize is that if he's given four chapters to the church gathering, then the church gathering is important. It's important that we gather as God's people. Um, so, as we try and solve all these problems, we've got to let the gospel speak into that. So, I personally read 12 commentaries on this text. Never done that before. I read two books on this section. I've read a few articles, listened to a few podcasts. Um, and then I spoke to my friends at, at Anthem, and they're in the same vein. I think um, Bert might have read more, because Bert's a studious. He's the studious teacher type. He's very, very detailed. And there's no sort of commonality for, among everybody. This, this one says, listen, if this one agrees but disagrees here, and this one agrees here but disagrees there, it's kind of all over the place. So I think we have to be careful to make hard and fast rules from this text when actually there's not, not a set of like everybody's got this together. It's not like clear. So we have to be very careful that we don't do something with the text that the t- we, we're unable to do. So I know that some of you might disagree with me at the end and want to stone me. That's okay. You know, as I said to the guys at Camarilla this morning, if you'll just let me walk in peace, don't stone me, I won't come back. You know? Um, but our commitment, I think, in this text is that we would keep our eyes on Jesus. Because I think that it, when it says here, so whatever you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We actually want to do it in that way. I think also is to look at this text through a missional mind, where he's talking about, he's talking about the Greeks, the Jews, and those in the church. So this, that some might be saved. So this has a missional aspect to it. So there's these two really key aspects. What does it mean to gather and what happens in there? And what does that look like for an unbeliever walking in? That's important. And I keep those in mind. Is that all right? And it leads later to the gifts, etc. There are five things that I think that if you dig in the text and read the text and look at it carefully, there are five things that I think pop out that are kind of, kind of, this stands fast. Number one, there were women who were leading public ministry in the New Testament church. Because Paul says, when they prophesy and pray in the church, 
Now, what happens when you get to 1 Corinthians 14, which says, I do not permit a woman to speak? Well, we have to do work. But here he's saying, I, when a woman prophesies or prays publicly, just you're going to have a head covering. All right? We'll come to that in a moment. But he was allowing women to be ministering in the church. Two, there was an equality of men and women in the worshiping community. We can go back and read it a moment from Galatians 3. Three, Paul is fighting for some sort of gender distinction. He's not as opposed to gender neutralization. He's not trying to say there is no gender. He's trying to say there is gender. Let's celebrate gender. Let's enjoy this gender, etc. We'll come to that in a moment. Fourthly, Paul is concerned about God getting the glory when we gather. Saying it's all about God. It's not about us. And fifthly, do not cause another to stumble or to put obstacles in the ways of unbelievers in our gatherings. Is that all right? I think those things pop out. I think the most glaring problem with this text historically is that it's been used to suppress or impose second class status on women. And I don't think this is what this text does at all. If we use it for that, I think we've misused the text. Um, so, Paul, I think Paul assumes equality in the gathering of God's people. And so, if you try and use this to silence women, I think we miss the boat. Is that all right? So, now let's look at a few issues. Some interpretive difficulties, as we might say. There are, and there are, there are a bunch of them in this text. The first one, there are five that we're going to look at and then unpack that. The first one is the word gyne. Is that how you pronounce it, um, Brian? Gune. Gani Gune, where you get the word gynecologist. <laughs> That's where the word comes from. That word is used 16 times in this little text. Five times, we're using the ESV, five times it's translated wife, and 11 times it's translated woman. Can we see that? Well, what happens if we switch those around or made them all woman or all wife? How do we kind of know? But we don't. We've got this word that the translators are trying to wrestle with and they make it, they make a choice. Okay? We, God bless them for making a choice. So, but we have to read into that. It's really important in this text. If it was just one word and it's always wife, we get it. If it's one word, it's always woman, we get it. But they use it. And Paul seems to be mixing all, everything up. It's kind of interesting. The second word is the word kafali, which is the word for head. And it has at least three meanings. It can mean your physical head, this thing on your shoulders. It can mean authority. It can mean source, like the head of a river. So how does that play out here in the way we use it? The translators, I think, had, seems to me had such a struggle... And many of the commentators say this, that they actually didn't translate it. They just said head. And we figure out what it means. It's like love. You know, there are five words for love in the New Testament, but we get love. So you've got to figure it out. How do, you know? We're left with those sort of challenges. The third one, which I'm not really going to talk about tonight, just for time, is because of the angels. Yeah? Uh, a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So we can debate, has it to do with us ruling angels one day? It's like all, we don't know. So 
Paul throws in a phrase like this, assuming that we know what he's talking about. And maybe 2,000 years ago they did. But uh, we don't. And if these great, very clever commentators don't, then I don't either. I try. So, um, but I'm not going to comment on that one. I don't think it kind of sticks, is, is the main purpose of the text. So we can come back to that if you're really interested another time. Fourth one is head coverings. And this has its own complications. Is a head covering a head covering? Is it hair? Is it something else you put on? Um, it's kind of it's about men and women. He talks about women coming in, he's jumping to men and jumping backwards and forwards. It's kind of really, really confusing. But I think the one thing that could be in play here is that if a woman did not cover her head, it was a sign that she was sexually available and possibly even promiscuous. She was a loose woman. She was available, um, et cetera, et cetera. So if you covered your head was a sign, maybe you were married or there was chastity involved or you have a higher uh, status in the community or whatever. We, and again, we, it's not 100% clear. The interesting thing for me is that Paul allows all women to cover their heads, which would not have been the case in the culture because a loose woman or someone who'd come out of being a prostitute or whatever wouldn't have done that. But he allows that. So he's given dignity to these women. Um, so, and then it comes to the men, and it's kind of hair, short hair, no, it's kind of what? So, we'll come to, we're going to come back to that in a moment. But it seems to be that maybe if a man has long hair, that's not really good. So, all you men, I want you to go shave your hairs, head, tomorrow. Okay, you see, um, Miles already did his this last two weeks ago, so he's fine. <laughs> But think culturally. Because today we, we're not really interested in head coverings. We're not interested if someone's got short hair or long hair or whatever. But imagine if ladies decided to come to church in bikinis. I think they would be like, no, cover up. You know? Or if a man decided to come in here, no shirt. Imagine if Tyler, let's use Tyler, I know. Tyler comes in six pack, maybe eight pack. <laughs> Walks in, or me in my barrel. Walks in. It's a distraction. Why? The whole idea is that we don't want to be distracted from our worship of Jesus. We want Him to be the focus. And if anything can distract us from that, we need to be watching that. Is that all right? We'll come back to that in a moment. I don't know if you saw this week, uh, this last week. Uh, I was reading on CNN where in China, in Beijing, they have banned all men from walking around the city without shirts on. Can't do that anymore. Now illegal. So there's a cultural thing. Can't wear a shirt. Can you walk around without a shirt, yeah? Yes, you can. When we grew up in South Africa, you could walk around without a shirt, but you weren't allowed to drive without a shirt. Because you get a ticket. So there are all these cultural things that are in play and they're confusing to us now. Imagine what we're trying to interpret 2,000 years ago. It's kind of, what on earth is happening? The other thing that some commentators say, and this comes out of, from archaeological discovery, is when they're looking at pieces of pottery and paintings and frescoes and all that, is the sense that there seem to have been in places like Ephesus and Corinth, where there were kind of more urban centers, and there was a center where the female cults were being developed, is that there was a tendency towards androgyny, where men were starting to dress like women, and women were starting to dress like men. And I think Paul is saying, no, no, be a man, be a woman. You know, I think, maybe. 
It's not definite. And then the fifth one is this where it says here in verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Greek, there's no, there's no, the word symbol is not there. It's like the, the translators have tried to find a way to make this text work, so they've put in that word. But it's actually not in the text. So it would say normally, that is why a woman ought to have authority on her head. Not a symbol of authority on her head. That is why a woman ought to have authority on her head. That would be the literal translation, which again is, is its own confusion. So, at least on those few things, we can say this is, this, is, this is much more difficult than we start out. Initially, when you read this text, you just want to laugh in some ways because it's kind of all over the place. You try and unpack it. Are you still with me? Or is anyone on board? All right. So, let's look at some of these things. Remember, I think this is important to remember. Remember, for the first 250 years, at least, of the church, they met in homes. They didn't meet like this. You know, at about 300 or so, the church started gathering in churches around altars. And then in 1500, the pulpit became the, the point of focus. But in the first 250 years, they were meeting around a meal in a home. It's important to remember that in your thinking. Don't think this. All right. So, the head of every man is Christ, or the head of every person is Christ. The head of every woman is man. The head of Christ is God. That's what the text says. So, but we know we have these confusions with some of these words like head, and we have confusions with the word woman or wife. And so there's challenges around that. Imagine if it said this, Jesus is the authority over humanity. A husband, man, is the authority over wife, woman. And God is the authority over Christ. Does it work? Sort of. But not quite. Or we could say Jesus is the source of humanity. The husband man is the source of the wife or the woman. And God is the source of Christ. Does that work? Ish. Sort of. So it's challenging. And we can make, mix those up and make different ones as well. It's hard when you haven't, you don't know exactly what Paul was trying to say, and we have to try and make it work. As Bert, Matt, and I were discussing this, and I would say, I'm trying to figure on a scale with being honorable. We're, I'm here, Bert's here, Matt's about here in terms of conservative, more liberal, I don't know, whatever. But we all, we all feel that at the, at the heart, as we've tried to understand the text and read it, we feel like the word source is a good word. You know, um, but again, we could be totally wrong. But it feels to flow more naturally with the text. Um, but I want to ask you this: when you look at these sort of texts, is to step backwards and do not treat this as a proof text for male authority over woman. I don't believe that this text has anything to do with that. Is that okay? I don't think. I mean, I'm not saying that. Males don't have authority over women. That's another whole story. Whether, but this text is not saying that. This text is saying something else. Right, so then he talks about every man who prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. What does that mean? Can you, do you know? It's kind of confusing. The best that we can do is something to do with length of hair maybe. 
And if men were starting to do their hair up nicely, maybe it's a distraction to the woman or to someone else coming in and it's taken away from reflecting on God, um, seducing onlookers by their beauty. And that was starting to happen. You can see that from archaeological records. That was starting to happen. Um, makes sense if, we, if it follows through the way he talks about the woman, the similar way. So, but every woman wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as her head was shaven. For if a woman wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Surely you could have said it more simply. Anyway, and I think this is one of the areas where the woman wife, which word we use, that decision becomes really important. And many commentators think that actually Paul was speaking about all women. And for, from this reason is that nowhere does it say that single women or single men can't prophesy or pray. So if, if that's the case, then he, it could be talking about all women. Again. Okay? We're leaning that way, but we're not 100% certain. So we're leaning that way. Same with single men. Because if, it, if the single men can, can the single woman? It's complications. Um, and I personally would lean to women, not just to wives. I think it, otherwise it makes single woman like, no, no, you still got to grow up. I think, no, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, I think when a person stands up, a woman, in this case they're talking about a woman, stands up to prophesy, to pray, with her head uncovered in the culture. Imagine a person walking into the meeting, is really interested, oh, what are these new, this new group of people doing? And a person walks in who's Greco, Roman, Greco, whatever, Greco, Roman, does, not a Christian, walks in and he sees a woman stand up without a head covering, with short hair. What's his, what will be going through his mind? Ah, she's available. Paul says, no, cover your head. No, you're not available. You're, right now, it's about Jesus. So I think that's a really important thing. Um, Yeah, for a man ought to cover. I'm leaving some stuff out. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Um, again, it's 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 a little confusing, a little complicated. I think and there's a great emphasis on the word think. All right? that Paul is not trying to reinterpret Genesis in any way. And Genesis 1-2 is about the creation. And, and God created man and woman, male and female, in, both in his own image and his likeness, both to carry that there, but yet they are different. Um, and I think Paul is saying that men and women draw their glory from each other because you cannot survive without the other. There is a complementarianism in what it means to be male and female. And I'm not using it in the terms of the theological elder. I'm not using it in that term right now. I'm using it in the sense that men and women are complementary to each other. They complete each other in God. And together they're meant to reflect the image and the glory of Jesus. So if we only have, one, if we only have men in church, 
We're not getting the full image likeness of what God is like. If we only have a woman, same. We need both to truly reflect that. Um, and both of us can deflect away from Jesus towards us by the way that we do things. And I think he's coaching the church, the Corinthian church, in how to understand this and how to live that out. Um, there is a sense, if we use the word source, there is a sense that woman is from man. So Yahweh created man, male, out of the dust of the earth, the narrative, and breathed life into him. And a man stood up and, and then he realized he was alone and he, God wanted to give him a helpmate. That word there, just quickly, this is not in my notes, but it's actually the word predominantly used about God rather than humanity, that helpmate. So God says, no, I need someone. So he puts a man in his sleep and he makes woman. Where from? From the rib. And commentators say it's a, it's a symbol, it's a sign that it came to be complementarian alongside man. So if we use source, then God is the source of man. Man is the source of woman. But together. And together they reflect God. It's not because woman came from man, man is superior to woman. Because he goes on later to say, no, no, but in the future, men come from women through childbirth. So, is this, is this clear as mud? All right. So, Paul is not trying to change the story. He's trying to give application to that story into the church, into this Greco-Roman world that might not have fully understand creation story as the Jews would have understood it. This is why a woman wife ought to have authority... On or over her head because of the angels. So we're forgetting about the angels just at the moment. Um, I think Paul is affirming a woman's authority over her own head. In the context of what he's talking about here. Is that even though she is free. And has been liberated through the gospel. That Jesus comes and liberates us from the the chains and the shackles of society and culture. He makes women free. But he's saying in that, don't abuse that. Learn to limit yourself, your own authority, for the sake of what God is doing in the gathering of the people. So if you're going to come to church, don't come in a bikini. It's not helpful. You, you can wear a bikini at the beach. But in, when we're gathering to worship Jesus, let's not do anything to distract from that. Same with men. Um, so, men, women are free to minister, but they just have to just be careful. Men are free to minister. They must just be careful. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair... See how he switches. Like, what? Stick with the plot. It is a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Even though we are free, we are interdependent. We need each other. And what I do affects you. What you do affects me. What I do as a man affects the woman. What a woman does affects me as a man. We are interdependent and we have to recognize that. 
Women are not free to make decisions apart from their relationship to men. And men are not free to make decisions apart from their relationship to women. We have to think that through. Now, if you come from our culture, which is, was very male-dominated, alpha dog male, we made as many decisions as we liked and we didn't take the woman into account because they didn't really matter. That's a cultural thing. It's actually not the go- The gospel comes and liberates us from that and asks us to actually do this well. So when you read a, a, a text like Ephesians 5 about submission, actually the mo- in that culture, the most offensive part is Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's much more offensive than wives submit to your husband in that context. Wives knew they had to submit to their husbands. Well, I mean, that's what they did. So, but for a man to consider his wife, oh man, that was a huge thing. And Paul's saying, no, we actually need to consider each other. It's really, really important. Um... Same way as in the church, they're Jews and Gentiles. They're different people. They've got different cultures. Different. We need to take those things into account. Um, understanding these differences and the potential for problems. At the end, I'm going to tell a funny story, but I'm going to put the tape off, the recording off. You just remind me about the funny story. So what is a conclusion? I love the anthem guys always say, what is the gospel conclusion to all of this? In Christ, there is no value hierarchy between men and women. We're equal. For in, this is from Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. And he talks about women, which is an interesting turn of phrase as well. Through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. That means everybody is an heir in Christ to the promise, male and female. But while there is no value hierarchy in the church, we still have to realize there's Jews and Gentiles. There's slaves and free that were in the church. There were women and men. There were barbarians and Scythians. There were all sorts of people in the church. There were the the highfalutin and the ex-prostitutes and beggars. They were all in the church and they all come in with preconceived ideas, with different notions, different cultures coming together. And we have to be aware of that if we are to function as the church of Jesus. Which is actually one of the tragedies of the missionary model of church is that we send missionaries to other countries and it's, hap- it's true of Linda and I coming here. That's the terrible thing. But when we send white missionaries to Africa and we impose culture upon them. So now you go into the jungles of Africa and preachers wear three-piece suits and ties. This is not their culture. It's so stupid. And they sing Hillsong. No, sing, they should sing their stuff. But you know, the problem is the same. When we came here, we came with a culture. We came with a preconceived idea of Christianity that we grew up with and tried to impose it here. Not impose, but just lived it out. And it caused a ruckus. Just words. Like standing here and saying, you must go see that movie. And someone coming in. How dare you tell me what I must do? Who are you? Who do you think you are? I think, what? Word. 
So we have to be aware of those cultures. We have to be aware what is our church culture here as Mercy Town that could in any way hinder an unbeliever or another person coming in and feeling at home and saying, I can belong here. If it's the gospel that offends, we're okay. But if it's our cultural things, then we have to be careful. So Paul's saying to you, if a person comes in, let them not come in and think, oh, this is a gathering of loose women. Because that was what was happening in Corinth and Ephesus among the female cults that were being developed. You say, no, when you come in, cover your head. Because that honor the culture. And this is actually going to play into our readings of Peter when we get back to it next week. The same idea of how do we live in a foreign culture and honor that culture and still honor God. Is this okay? Still clear as mud or is it a little bit clearer? We learn how to self-limit our freedom so that by any means and all means we might save some. If your freedom does not allow you to say no or to limit yourself, then it's you're in bondage to your freedom. And you're a legalist to your freedom. If any of you were called, as a woman were called to minister in a Muslim country, you would cover your head. Would you not? Not because you have to, because, no, you're free. You don't have to wear a head. But in that culture, if you didn't, you'd lose your audience before you even started. If you went to China as a man right now, you stood on the street corner to preach without your shirt, you lost the culture before you even started. So we have to learn how to limit our freedoms for the sake of others. If I may, use, can I, may I use you as an example, Mike? Mike is, is, public, is, an, is an alcoholic. He's clean 11 years now, is it? Somewhere around about that. If, our, if he starts feeling, man, I'm struggling, and none of us can say there's no alcohol in our gatherings, then we are in bondage to our freedom. We have to be able to learn to say no. If at our potluck next week, we invite someone who comes in and they are an alcoholic, we put all the alcohol away and we don't say, where's our freedom? No, for the sake of another. We don't want anything we do to be a distraction of what Jesus wants to do. Is that all right? You know what we did in South Africa often is we sent people, especially women, home to get changed. But we never did it to the men. It was so bad. We just have to, I think God wants us to grow up in our knowledge of him and realize we have these incredible freedoms, but we're able to self-limit. There's a wonderful verse, and I can't remember, it says the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Grace teaches us to say no. How many of you have traveled overseas? Good portion. Actually, this morning, both meetings the same. One of the things you'll notice when you travel to other countries is that these other countries love Americans, but they really think they're arrogant. And we try and impose our values on everybody rather than respecting other people's values. We have to be really, really careful if we don't want to lose the plot and lose our witness to what Jesus wants to do. In everything, do what it takes to glorify God and build others up. Don't do anything that will cause someone to stumble. Don't do, we don't want to make things more difficult for people. We want to make it, you know, oh, I want to be this. Look at the love. 
Not like, wow, look how they dress or they, they drink a lot or whatever, whatever, whatever. Is that all right? Close with this. Thanks for being patient. Here are three implications. We've touched on them, but I want to just lay them out. This is from Bert. I think Bert wrote this. It's beautiful. Men and wo- These are implications. Men and women worshipping in equality and distinction is glorifying to God. In unity, in distinction. Men worship as men. Women worship as women. Gender d- distinctions are not wrong. They do not go against Paul's teachings about equality. Gender distinctions actually glorify God as the creator and enable us to fully carry the image of God. Meaning to reflect the God, the creator, as his his creations, we are to lean into his created intention. To be man and woman together in mutual interdependence is to be fully human in the truest sense. Men, part of how you give glory to God is by expressing your faith and worship as a man. Woman, part of how you give glory to God is by expressing your faith and worship as a woman. Implication two, our posture when we gather is to do whatever we can to make sure that there is no distraction or stumbling block for our brothers, sisters, and the watching, unbelieving world. Despite the potential seriousness of this problem, however, Paul is not ordering these women to change their wardrobe. He is appealing to them to choose their wardrobe in the light of the mission of Jesus. Our hearts should be for others, not for ourselves. If we are clinging to our rights, chances are we are not in it to make much of Jesus, but to make much of ourselves. In the words of John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. It's from John chapter 3. If this mission is going to be successful, it is not going to happen by us flaunting our rights and being culturally insensitive. It is going to happen through faithfulness to Jesus, selflessness, and missional contextualization. Implication three. When you gather for worship, make sure your appearance and conduct does not distract from Jesus. When we do things that take away glory, honor, and attention from Jesus, we are defeating the whole purpose of gathering. Paul's challenge to the Corinthians was to be aware of their maleness and femaleness and to carry it appropriately among believers and unbelievers alike. How's that? I think there's stuff for us to think through. I'm not saying that you have to agree with everything that we've said yet. But what I have hoped is that you will look at it and think through this text, think through this stuff, and get the big picture of what Paul, I think, is trying to say. We can get so nuanced that we actually get caught up without seeing the real thing that was happening. Um, And if we want to be disciples of Jesus in Los Angeles, following Jesus with all our hearts, then I think we need to take heed of some of these things.